seems like if Rustakuchi is going to rise to his rhetorical heights, heights as high as those Brunetto himself climbed, the Pilgrim's got to say something. And sure enough, he's about to. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante. Slow walk, comedy, you know the drill. If you don't, man, you should go back to the beginning of this thing. We've been walking for a while, but here we are. In the 16th canto of Inferno, we're at lines 46 through 93. We're going slowly through this canto because it's difficult, because it's hard to parse apart, and because it's so often overlooked. We might as well look, because our poet is worth a very slow and very careful look. Dante has been out on the sands amongst the sodomites. He has met who he wants us to think is his teacher, Brunetto Latini, who may or may not have been his teacher, but he certainly wants us to think that. He's passed on from Brunetto, and he's now found three Florentine noblemen who were involved very intricately in the political life of Florence. They, too, are here amongst the Sodomites. They have formed a wheeling circle around each other on the burning sands, and they've been speaking to him in the most highfalutin sort of way. What does our pilgrim have to say back? Let's have it. Lines 46 through 63 of Canto 16. If I'd been able to find a cover from the fire, I would have thrown myself in with their lot, and I believe my teacher would have let me do it. But because I would have been scorched and cooked, fear vanquished my good intentions that made me famished to give them a hug. So I started. It was not disdain, but sadness that fixed your condition inside me. In fact, it's not going to go away anytime soon. Right from the moment, my master said words to me that made me think that worthy guys like you might step over here by me. I am from your country. I've always heard of your works and your honored names, even passing them on with great affection. I leave the bitterness behind me and head for the sweet fruits that have been promised to me by my truthful leader. But first, I must plunge all the way down to the center of things. All right, here's our pilgrim's response, and it's not terribly difficult to parse apart. There aren't too many difficult knots in this. We should say that the pilgrim doesn't seem to be taken in by the rhetoric in the same way that Rustakuchi thinks he's going to be taken in. We want to talk about that for a minute, but we really want to look at what's going on here and the coming change that is overcoming our pilgrim. He says, if I'd been able to cover, take, find a cover from the fire, I would have thrown myself in with their lot, and I believe my teacher would have let me do it. At this point, we should know that the pilgrim is on the side of these Florentine Guelphs. He's looking at them. They come out of history. They tried to do great things for Florence. He's looking down at them and thinking, ah, oh, these are the kind of guys I wanted to be. Don't forget Dante was a political figure first before he was a poet. He was part of the leading council of Florence. He was on diplomatic missions for Florence. He's part of the coterie that tried to keep Florence in a peaceful state over time, despite the Pope's machinations and despite the machinations from the Holy Roman Empire up above. He's part of the political machinery of Florence. And he sees these guys who tried to keep the peace in their own ways, whether it was dry 
driving the Ghibellines back out of Florence. <laughs> I don't know that that's keeping the peace, but okay. Driving the Ghibellines back out of Florence, writing peace treaties, trying to tell people not to go to war. He's looking at them and he wants to be a part of them. In other words, what I'm telling you is that right here in the 16th canto of Inferno, Dante the poet is putting to death his hopes, his hopes for a political solution to Florence's problems. Now, we don't see that quite yet. We see that right here as this first move toward an identification with these figures, almost forgetting that they're in hell, but not quite. If I'd been able to find a cover from the fire, a cover. Remember what they notice about him? His clothes. This canto is turning on that which is covered and that which is revealed. And there is no cover from the fire. So despite the beautiful rhetoric, it doesn't save you from the firefall on the burning sands. And our pilgrim is not dumb enough to step off the dike and try to hug them. He wants to, but he doesn't. You should know, too, before we move on to the next bit of this passage where the pilgrim actually speaks, that this bit of trying to embrace them or hug them is often seen in modern commentary as Dante's, well, his homosexual urges toward them. There's two ways to look at this. You can either say that Dante is tempted by the sins of hell, that is, around Francesca, he becomes overcome by his feelings, just the way she became overcome and fell into adultery, that amongst Chaco, he becomes kind of gluttonous for more information, that he becomes angry at Filippo Argenti amongst the angry, that the, the pilgrim is tempted toward the very sins of hell. And so now that we're amongst the Sodomites, he's suddenly feeling an unnatural affection toward men. I don't find this explanation all that compelling. I think the pilgrim is on a different journey from the damned, and I think the poet knows that from the get-go. So I don't find that a compelling explanation for why he wants to give these guys a hug. I, listen, as a gay man, I wish it were so, but I don't think it's so. I think, rather, he's feeling a camaraderie. He wants this kind of fellowship, and he's got to remember, oh, right, they're in hell. There's no cover from this fire. Even though they're walking in each other's footsteps, even though they're making no linear progress or no forward progress, even though they're caught on a wheel, there's something that want, he wants to be a part of this. And this is Dante's political hopes. It's always been his hopes. And we're going to watch it right here start to get put to death. Let's move on in the passage. So I started, it was not disdain but sadness, thereby deflating Rustacucci's rhetoric. Remember, Rustacucci had said, you know, if you feel disdainful toward us because of our looks, because we're singed and hairless and burned up and all, just remember who we are and how famous we are and the great things we did. And the pilgrim stops and says, no, it's not disdain, it's sadness. Here, I think we can watch the turn. This is the major shift. In disdain, how do I say this? It's an up and down relationship, right? Somebody's up and somebody's down. Somebody's on top and somebody's on the bottom. Somebody's offering the disdain and somebody's being disdained upon. Well, it's terrible English, but you know what I mean. Somebody is up and down in the relationship. Sadness is a different thing entirely. And let me just stop on this for a second. Sadness is without a doubt the hardest human emotion to feel. 
It is so much easier to feel rage or anger or disdain or condescension or generosity, which you can use to cover sadness, or kindness, which you can use to cover sadness. Sadness is hard. I just, you know, if you've been following this podcast, you know, I just went through the death of my dad, and it was a terrible death. It was a painful, awful death. I would say he went over a cliff and he pulled me with him. At the end of that, there were so many people I wanted to blame. The oncologist, the cardiologist. I wanted to blame hospice. I, I, I had so many people, my brother, my mother, my husband. I, there's so many people that it was so easy to place blame or anger or irritation or petulance or generosity or kindness or a fake kind of, oh, please let me give you a hug. Why? Because I was trying to avoid feeling sad. And that is the hardest thing to feel, sadness the loss. It's that that fixed your condition inside me. You tried so hard to do so much good by Florence. And look at you. You're burning up in hell. All those good works. Where did they get you in all of this? You're still right here. And he says it's not going to go away anytime soon, thereby helping us see that this change that is coming into the pilgrim is permanent. The change that it is not rage at Florence per se, although we're going to have it in the next episode of this podcast. It's not per se rage, but underneath it all, there is a fundamental sadness that is going to change the way you see the world. Just like right now, if you look out at the world and you don't think the world is going, the United States, Canada, the UK, Ireland, you don't think things are going, the EU, the way that you want them to go or you think they should go. If you just stopped and felt the fundamental sadness of it, I guarantee you, your politics would change. Let's just pass on in the passage. Right from the moment, my master said words to me that made me think that worthy guys like you might step over here by me. I mean, I, I felt the sadness the moment I was told that there are people who are worthy of courtesy. I didn't feel disdain, and I didn't feel the need to be courteous. I felt it right at those words from Virgil. And it's interesting that poetic words, words, parole, words from a poet, Virgil, are the way that I entered into this state that is beyond courtesy, that is beyond medieval civics, that is just sad, that things have gotten so bad. And he says, the pilgrim, I am from your country, a very simple, straightforward statement. He uses the word terra, which is a little more than country. I translated it country. It's close. It's more like I am from your land, terra. Um, how about this? I'm from your terroir. I know that seems ridiculous to say terroir about a human, but you know what I mean. The place that creates who you are. I am from your terra, from your earth, from your ground, from your land. I'm, I'm with you. I know you. More than politics, what, what binds us together is terra. I've always heard of your works and your honored names, even passing them on with great affection. And then this, I leave the bitterness behind me and head for the sweet fruits. You realize we're back to Brunetto. 
Remember the bitter crab apples growing up and choking out the sweet figs? And there's a way in which Brunetto, with all of his craziness about the Fiesolans, the deplorables that come down from the hills, Brunetto is focused on the bitterness. He's focused on those terrible crab apples that choke out the sweet figs. And here, the pilgrim is starts to take a step away from Brunetto. I leave the bitterness behind me and head for the sweet fruits because ultimately, let me tell you, that anger will help you hold on to the bitterness, but sadness will help you let go of it. When you really feel it is sad, your divorce, the death of your parents, the death of a child, the political landscape of your country, the loss that you feel around you, when you retranslate it out of bitterness and out of anger and into sadness, I guarantee you there's a way to head for the sweet fruits. Trust me on this one. I have lived my life this way. I have learned how to push the bitterness aside and head for the sweet fruits. And the way you do that is admitting to the sadness. This is such a giant change in our pilgrim. I leave the bitterness behind you. This isn't the guy talking to Chaco, who's so greedy to know all the ins and outs of Florentine politics. This isn't the guy having a pissing match with Farinata in Canto 10. This is somebody saying, oh my gosh, all of this just adds up to anger and oppression. And I need to head for the sweet fruits that have been promised me by my truthful leader. And again, it goes back to Virgil. Somehow the sweet fruits go back to poetry. And I don't mean you have to read poetry to redeem yourself. And I don't mean you have to read poetry to find sweet fruits. But for Dante, the sweet fruits are found from Virgil. They've been promised by him. And it's Virgil's words that bring up the sadness. It's Virgil's words that have goaded him on to see that, hey, the way I thought about the world is not necessarily the best way to think about the world. But first, he says, I must plunge all the way down to the center of things. It's at this moment, recognizing the sadness letting go of the disdain, letting go of the bitterness that the pilgrim knows the path ahead. The path ahead is going to get worse, but it's going to go down to the very center of everything. It is the clearest sighted moment of the journey ahead. Let me say one more thing about the journey itself. There are two ways to write. A journey narrative. If you're going to set out and write your travel log, write your journey across, I don't know, Mississippi and Alabama, I don't know, why, across Saskatchewan. I'm trying, I'm trying to pick places that most people don't write journeys across. If you're going to write your journey across these places, there's two ways to do it. Don't take these as hard and fast categories. They overlap really a lot. But okay, here are the two ways. One, the things I saw. You can write a journey in which you detail basically everything that you saw. I saw this, I saw that, da, da, da. you know, I saw the mountains, I saw the hills, I saw the fields, I saw this, uh, the, I saw the ocean. These are all the things I saw. That's one way to do it. Or you can write a journey narrative by the people I met. 
Ah, that's a different kind of journey. Now, these are not exclusive categories. Again, if you're going to write a journey across a landscape, but you're going to focus on the people you met, you're still going to write about that landscape. Think about the best-selling book from, what was it, the 1970s? Um, Blue Highways in the United States by William Least Moon. It's a great book. You should go back and reread it. I just reread it a couple of years ago, and it really stands the test of time. Um, basically, uh, basically, it's a kind of Dantean <laughs> work, actually. William Leesteet Moon, the author, undergoes some, a divorce and some bad things and decides he doesn't want to be an academic anymore, etc. He makes a, a makeshift camper van out of his truck, and he just takes off across the United States, and he's going to follow the blue highways. That is not the interstates or the highways in red on maps, but the blue highways, the, the insignificant little highways. And he's going to go across America on these roads. It's a really fabulous book. It deserved to be a bestseller beautifully written, and it's written in the style of the people I met. Of course, he's going to describe the landscape of Appalachia and the landscape of the American Plains and all that stuff, but it's really centered on the people. These are the people that run the store where I bought groceries one day, and he stays and sits with them in Appalachia, and he learns about their lives, and he learns about who they were. And over the course of this journey, he changes because of the people I met. All right? Most journeys across the afterlife in the 11 and 1200s, and there were a lot, Dante is not unique to this kind of narrative. There are a lot of journeys into the afterlife in the 11 and 1200s, and almost all of them are structured on what I saw. So I cross the landscape. I see the murderers being boiled alive in oil. I see the adulterers. Usually the adulterers are having their genitals pierced or tortured in some way. I saw the homosexuals say, same thing. I saw the blasphemous. You know, it, it, here's all the people I Here's all the things I saw. And here's the landscape that I saw. And yes, I saw people. I'm not saying I didn't see people. I see the damned and I see what's happening to them. But still, it's descriptive of the landscape, not Dante. Dante chooses the other way. Dante writes comedy not based on the things I saw, but on the people I met. And what does that do? It does something extraordinarily important for the narrative. It sets it up as dialogic. Let me explain that for a second. I don't mean dialogic as in dialogue. That is, we're talking to each other like play dialogue, like theater dialogue, like movie dialogue. I say something, you say something. It, it, it's related to that, but not exactly that. A dialogic structure means that there are two poles. There is a pole of the narrator and there is a pole of the people that the narrator meets. We can see that pole as Francesca Chuck. Filippo Argenti, Ferranata. We can see all Pierre della Vena. We can see all these poles that we've been passing. And these two poles become the way you string meaning. You don't string them just from my eyes. If you write a travel narrative based on what I saw, the things I saw, the whole thing turns on your eyes. The whole thing is a central point of view. If you write it based on the people I met, you suddenly created two points of view, a dialogic structure. And they're going to be in conversation with each other. Again, not dialogue, but thematically. For example, I am lost. I meet somebody who's sad. I am confused. I meet somebody who 
I don't know, is a connoisseur of great food. Suddenly, my confusion and their connoisseurship of great food come in dialogue with each other, and somewhere between us, we can maybe find the answer to confusion. It's to eat well. I don't know. I'm making this up. It's to eat well, or we can see the emptiness of their answer. Their answer is empty. Eating great food doesn't make me any less confused, or maybe it does, and maybe the thing is it makes me partly less confused, or I am... Let's say here's another dialogic structure. I'm just making this up. I am in the middle of a divorce, so I am furious, and I meet someone on my journey who's a divorce lawyer. Suddenly, there, there is my side of the argument. Oh, my gosh, my divorce. And then there's a person who makes a living, makes money out of divorces. So either my anger is going to become more pronounced, or I'm going to learn something about how divorces proceed, or I'm going to hire them as my divorce lawyer. There's a dialogic structure. Because not, I'm not saying we speak to each other. I'm saying we represent different points of view. And those points of view come in contact with each other and then fuse, fizz. They make a connection. They pull at each other. They do all kinds of strange things. Dante thought good rhetoric and fine counsel was enough to form human society. It's not. These men, Rusticucci, Tegiaio, Guido Warfare, these men are unnatural because their good rhetoric did not lead to a natural order of peace among humans. And so by writing in a dialogic stance, we now watch the pilgrim start to shift and alter because he's coming in contact with people who have alternate or, in this case, the same views. In this case, he meets three guys who hold exactly to what he thinks. Ah, oh, rhetoric will save us. Oh, like Aristotle said, we're going to form the common good out of, out of, out of beautiful speech. We're going to write the right words, make the right text. We're going to say the right things. We're all going to get together and we're going to pursue the common good together because our rhetoric is so good, because it's so finely crafted. We're going to be those people and we're going to get peace in Florence and he meets three guys on the sand who represent the very thing he cherishes most and they're burning alive in hell. It's not that they're homosexuals. It's that they're wrong. And seeing that brings up the sadness and, I should add, the connection. I am from your country. It's that sadness and connection that begins the great change in the pilgrim because we have gone as far as rhetoric can take us with Brunetto and with these three guys. Now we got to find something else. What? Well, to know that, you got to subscribe to this podcast. You got to stay tuned because you got to keep through Canto 16 because, yes, there is indeed rage ahead. Please don't think our pilgrim is at rest. He is not. He is still a Florentine man furious at the situation in Florence. There's lots ahead. We're going to watch it happen. And I guarantee you the 16th Canto is like oh, nothing else. It just kind of torques your brain in every direction because it offers the most human answers possible to the political and social turmoil that bedevils the world even to this day. I'm Mark Scarborough. Subscribe, rate, I need your ratings, please. 
Stick with me on the journey. Hashtag Walking with Dante on Twitter. I'll see you. You see me. If you hashtag it, I can follow you right back because I know you're doing it because of this podcast. And otherwise, see you very soon on the podcast Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.